When somebody reads 2 Peter 1, verses 12 to 15. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has been clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. Alright, so... Um, what Peter is really doing in what he's saying is not providing some new um, you know, information for them, but he's reminding them of some things that they already know. And he wants to remind them of these things. That's something that he considers very important. We might more likely want to hear new things and have our mind challenged by insights and thoughts we'd never considered before. But what's the value of reminding us of things we already know? To reestablish in our minds, to make it a focus. Something we're really thinking about all the time. Yes. I agree. What else? Might, when, might evaluate where we're at when we <coughs> grow. Yes. Maybe. So we don't forget? Yes. Let me ask you this question. Think about this. When you have sinned, is it mostly because of things you don't know? Or is it mostly because of not doing what you do know? Sometimes we're like, boy, I wish I knew more. Well, that, that of course is helpful. But sometimes our problem is not so much with the lack of knowledge, it's with the lack of keeping the knowledge we have fresh in our mind and letting that motivate and discipline what we do. And so I think there's a good practical reason for reminding them of these things. What he's just said. These were not new things. I mean, these are pretty fundamental when it's all said and done. You know, things like, you know, faith and... Uh, Moral excellence and self-control and love. I mean, they've heard about this before. But they need reminding of these things. It's very important that they be established in the truth. Not just that they, they've heard it before, but that they really are established in living it. Now I'm reminded of Luke 22, which I think is an interesting passage to connect with this. In Luke 22, 31... Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and you, when, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And this word strengthen is apparently the same word here as established. He's, he's seeking to strengthen the truth. And strengthen them in the truth that is present with them. He's doing what... Jesus said for him to do. And, and part of what that means is keeping this truth uppermost in their mind, reminding them of it, and, and exhorting them to live it. Now, there's a particular reason why Peter feels some urgency in doing this. Why is that? 
His time's almost up. Yes, he's about ready to do what? Die. Yeah, but what does he call it? Put off his tent. Yeah, he's about ready to take off his tent. <laughs> That's an odd way to say it. You ever thought about kicking the tent? The idea is probably that a tent is a temporary dwelling, and it's and it's like the idea he's going out of the tent and into the house. Yeah, he's going out of the tent. So the tent represents what? His body. Um, because really, when we die, isn't that what happens? We leave our bodies. You know, we leave the tent. Um, I'm going to come back to that in a minute because there's probably some things we need to say about that. But, but apparently, Peter saw his death as coming soon. And therefore, he couldn't waste any time. He needed to make sure he reminded them of these things because he might not have an opportunity. You know, now now think about, if you knew you were about to die, what would you, what would you be thinking about? Who would you be thinking about? I bet for some of us, if we knew we were about to die, we'd be thinking about ourselves. When Peter knows he's about to die, he's anxious for them, not for himself. Now, that's even stronger when you see the last part of verse 14 is also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Jesus has made clear that I'm about to die. wonder how that was. <laughs> you mean... You mean how it was revealed to him? Yes. Well, the Lord told him he's going to die back in John 21, but now's the time's getting clear. Do you suppose that he could be referring to that event in John 21? Look back there for a minute. It seems to me like that this might be. You can. You don't have to agree with me on this, and I may not agree with myself next week. But, <laughs> but John 21:18, talking to Peter. Truly, truly, I said to you. I say to you. When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he'd spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now you remember that's when Peter said, well, what about him? Looking at John, and John, uh, Jesus said, well, if I wanted to remain until I come, what's that to you? You know, don't worry about him. Here's what's going to happen to you. But evidently, he was going to be, um, have someone else's will imposed upon him. He was going to be brought where he didn't want to go. And, and that was going to be what kind of death he would die. It would be an involuntary death when he grew old. Now, I'm wondering if Peter, by now he's grown old, and perhaps he is seeing imminent signs of persecution that he combines the, the revelations when you grow old and you're going to actually be forced to go where you don't want to and that's how you're going to die. If Peter isn't putting two and two together by this revelation of God and seeing that, well, this is it. I'm old. The persecution's here. They're going to execute me. And 
you know, it's not going to be a pleasant execution. You know, it's not going to be one I would choose. You know, I'm not going to die one of these pleasant deaths in my sleep, you know, where you have a nice little heart attack and you don't even wake up. And, uh, you know, nothing really hurts. Wouldn't that be a nice way to go, as long as you knew a few days ahead of time so you could get everything organized. Uh, but this is going to be torture. This is going to be painful. And in view of the painful death, still he's thinking about them and not about himself. I don't know, what do you think about that, Terry? How exactly does he die, historically? Don't we? Th- don't they think he's crucified upside down? Yeah, he must re- suppose he requested not. He didn't deserve to die like Jesus, so crucify him upside down. That's what we think. I don't know how that even worked. Do you know how that worked? I don't want to know how that worked. <laughs> no, would you suffocate the same way if you were upside down? Or? Uh, Do you want to volunteer? With <laughs> 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 That'd be uh, interesting. <laughs> Would you die faster? Because? Faster. Yeah, and you, your head, you're all your blood would be in your head and you'd pass out. And be over. Well, maybe that's why I requested <laughs> <laughs> That's a pleasant thing to talk about. <laughs> well, you know, it wouldn't be a pleasant thing to think about. I mean, what would you think if you had Jesus statement about this hanging over your head your whole life, you know you're going to be subjected to involuntary torture and death. And well, Jesus knew the same thing. I mean, he, he was born to die. I mean, he was in the shed. He said, I was, for this reason, I was born. So, I mean, the cross was always before him. And as Peter being a disciple, a bondservant, he knew that that was before him. So, you know, and as, if he was growing in these things which he was, you know, I'm sure that he was prepared for it. I mean, it wouldn't be a pleasant thing, but I mean, if you know what's coming, I think you can prepare for it because, you know, there's no other choice. And maybe because you know that that's what your master has gone through and you are willing to suffer in the same way. Bond servants, what he said in verse 1. Amen. I mean, I think that's exactly the attitude we need to have. And... I think you see that. I mean, you don't see Peter here crying the blues over this. You know, and feeling sorry for himself and asking the brethren to, you know, have compassion toward him. He's just concerned about them. He wants to make sure he gets this written. He wants to make sure that they've got this to refer to. When he says in verse 15, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. I think he's referring to what he's writing right here. That's why he's writing this. Why, that's why he's being sure this gets in their hand. So that even after he's gone, they're going to be able to reread this. They're going to be able to know this reminder, this, this stirring them up to give diligence in their spiritual growth. Now, not everybody agrees with me on, on that uh, idea with verse 15 either. But that just seems the simplest to me, is that that's why he's written this. And that's what this will do. It'll keep reminding them even after he's gone. I'm going to come back to the tent idea, but do you have some other comments and thoughts, Shane? I just like the whole thing about what Peter was before denying Christ. You know, and now, what, and if what we believe is true historically, he feels not even worthy to be crucified with anyone. How much the Lord had worked in him. Yeah. Mark, just, just to see it. That's a good point, because he did feel sort of superior before. Yeah. How openly he talked to him now. Yes. Good point.
also considering from what Peter is now the way it used to be, that after confessing Jesus was a Christ, that he tried to take Jesus' sign and rebuke him when he started teaching the people right after that. He's, he's come along. The Lord has made him a rock. It's always been interesting. Well, it's been interesting to me lately too. In Acts 12, when he, when Herod was in prison, clearly the intent to kill him, you know. And you think about, you know, what, what would go through our mind if we knew the next day we were going to be killed. And but yet, uh, you know, I, I know for me, I would be on my knees all night, you know. Um, but he's he's asleep, and just see the peace that he had. Um, and, uh, oh, I, and just the, not the, you know, not the attention on himself either. The same it really doesn't make any difference what happens to us. That's not what's important. You know, Peter is filled up with this love for the brethren, this mission of the Lord, this concern for the sheep that the Lord had told him to tend back there in John 21. That's exactly what he's doing. He's the shepherd here feeding the sheep and, and even making provision for them for after his departure. And that's the attitude we ought to have. You know, just like Jesus did. You know, he was concerned, even when he was arrested, you know, if, if you're out for me, then let these go. You know, and, and just concern for them and saying, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. I mean, you see that constant preoccupation for others, not for, for ourselves. I think two two things stand out to me in this in this in these few verses. Number one, Peter will say twice in chapter here in chapter three, verse one, he said, "I'm writing to stir you up," and the word means to to arouse out of sleep. And it's like you said earlier; it's not new information. It's 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 doing what we already know. And I think the thing one thing about one thing about church. I have nothing to do with this, but at the congregation we have two men that decide when it's when it's call serves for weather, and so uh, last Sunday morning, they, well, they decided Saturday we we're going we're to have services Sunday morning because of the snow. Well, because the, we, so they had services at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, so it, this, it was this a friend of ours calling and said, hey, when I have service, to go sleigh riding. <laughs> so we went over sleigh riding, and you know what, it was, I was sitting there the whole time thinking, you know, okay, we're not having services before because that, that was the decision, I thought, this seems. This doesn't seem right. It feels like you know I need to be worshiping God. So even, and I thought you know if you if we didn't have services ever so often, sort of stirring us. I think, man, no wonder Lord said we need to gather on the first day of the week. You know because we need to be stirred up. We need. It's kind of like paint that sits. You know you just sit. I mean you need somebody to stir that. You know, so we need to be stirred. Number one and number two. I think about the endearment. Not only is Peter writing to them, say, okay, I'm just giving these lessons. You know, the idea of the fact that he had loved them. You think, you think about somebody when when they're gone. You know, what we what do we do at a funeral? Also, we're remembering all these things and and how you know we wish we had this person back and all they meant to us and all these reminders. And it's so fresh. We just we want to do better. You know, because this person meant so much. Peter is saying. I'm writing this to, this to you because I love you and hopefully just like the, what the Lord has done for us and dying for us. Those kinds of things stir us, endear us. So it's not just some words he's saying, you know, this is, I'm about to die. I want to leave this for you. And so those, those endearments then stir them. You would think this would have more impact on them knowing it's his dying message. You know, and I, I suspect 
And there are certain times in our life that probably what we say and do has more impact. And one of those times would be when we're dying. You know, some of us will know. I mean, you know, our physical condition makes it obvious that we're probably not going to be around long. Everybody else knows it too. And probably some of the things we say and do then, at that point may have more impact than things we say and do when we're, you know, hale and hearty. And this surely would have. Other thoughts? Well, go back to this putting off your tent idea. Um, <coughs> it is true, is it not, that this physical mortal body is, um, you know, sort of a house <coughs> for our spirit. In one sense, we're not our body. We dwell in our body. We, we, we understand that, and death is when our spirit separates from our body. All of that is true, and I think well conveyed by the idea of the tent. But I think sometimes people have taken this idea in a wrong direction and come up with some misconceptions. Because what would you say about our future? When Jesus returns, what will he do with our tent? Is our tent, our body, is it just sort of, you know, it's temporary and then we leave it and that's the end of the road for the tent and from there on out it's just our soul? Or is there a future plan for the tent? Well, what do you mean by that? I mean, it's not that we would become naked and, and shed the body, but that would what is more we all my life. Yes. That's right. So what does that mean? People still could interpret that two different ways. We'll be resurrected. We'll be raised. What's raised? Is it our soul raised or our body raised? Our soul never dies, so how can we raised? Exactly. We really are in an era where people do not believe in the resurrection of the body. Now, it is certainly true from 1 Corinthians 15, from Philippians 3, and other passages, that when our bodies are raised, they're going to be changed and transformed. But, it's still that, that these tents that are discarded are raised back in a much different, glorified, spiritualized way. But the tent's still raised. So don't think that when we leave the tent, that that's the end. We don't ever have to deal with the body again. Or we don't ever get to be reunited with our bodies again. That would not be the ideal. The ideal is not the soul discards the body because the body's a hindrance. There are some limitations of the mortal body but when Jesus comes back, he raises and changes and transforms the body to where we appear before God, body and soul, together. And I think it's important to teach that. The Bible's very clear about that. But so often people almost have sort of a, you know, attitude of disdain for the body. And like, well, there's, there's no future in the body. Get rid of the body as quick as you can, and that way we're just a, a freed soul. <laughs> Well, there's no real great thing about being a free soul. We want to be together with our body. We just need a glorified, transformed body. Yeah. What were those passages that you were talking about? First Corinthians 15, 
Philippians 3.21 are the two that I mentioned. There's a number of other passages dealing with the resurrection of the body as well. Uh, so, are you saying that uh, after the resurrection, when our bodies are raised, then it's going to be transformed, that body with us is going to go into heaven? Yes. The changed, glorified, transformed body will, will be body and soul together in heaven. will not just be disembodied spirits. It'll be a changed body. It'll be a glorified body. It'll be a body we don't even understand now. But our bodies will be raised. Hi. Uh, anything you want to say about any of this through 115? you can see that what we've seen so far has been sort of exhortation to give diligence to grow and be righteous and be godly you know live for God we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit um, but I think for a particular purpose that kind of fits in with this exhortation uh, so verses 16 to 21 For <clears throat> we did not follow cleverly tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made <clears throat> more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, do you understand in, in verses 16 to 18 what event he's referring to? Transfiguration? Yes. Interestingly, he's just used two terms that fit with that transfiguration event. He's used the term of the earthly tent or tabernacle. Remember how Peter said, Peter said, you know, let's make three tents or tabernacles. And he's used the idea in verse 15, after my departure is literally Exodus. And according to Luke's account of the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were discussing Jesus' departure, literally Exodus, when they were talking with him. So those two terms, interestingly, connect with the story of the transfiguration. I'm not sure what to make of that, other than it's kind of cool how he sort of leads into that with even some terms that would make you think about that. But his point in verse 16 is, we do not follow cleverly devised tales where we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was not once upon a time stuff. This is not some myth. This is not a fable. There was historical reality behind what we said when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a big question mark right there and really kind of affects how you see this whole book, I think. 
And I'm still working on this myself, but I've got an, I think I know where I should stand on this. What does he mean by the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? He's made known to them the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that refer to? His resurrection and second coming, maybe? I think it refers to his second coming. I think he's talking about this was not some fairy tale, some myth, when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that really the theme of much of this part of the letter is the idea that Jesus is coming back and we've got good reason to believe that. Now in chapter 3, there are those who would deny that Jesus would ever come back. And they denied that in part because they wanted to live the way they wanted to. They didn't want to think about Jesus coming back, so they just said he wasn't coming back. But, but Peter here, I think, is showing two good reasons to not take the teaching about the second coming as being some cleverly devised tale. This is actually true. A, because we saw his majesty, the very majesty he's going to display when he comes again. And B, because the prophets, you know, spoke of that. We have the, the confirmed prophetic testimony. Um, I don't know. There's, there's the other, here's, here's a different view, would be that he's talking about his first coming. And that, that makes a lot of sense to me, but it doesn't, to me, fit the theme of the book together so well. What do you think about that? Gary, in that sense, I think the key word, seems for First Peter, the key word is hope, okay, because they're going through the trials and tribulations. The key word in this seems to be knowledge, okay, and, and because it even closes the book that grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he may be doing, and again, I may be, because I haven't studied this in depth, but Maybe it's the idea, he's, he says, look, you know, I'm going to depart from you, and I'm leaving you a reminder of this, that you may know that what we're teaching, the fact that we were eyewitnesses, this isn't a fairy tale. You can have confidence in the fact that we saw him, and that we're leaving you this reminder, so you can have confidence and in the, the knowledge that we saw this, and so therefore you can know that this is not... A cunning, the devised fable. He was here. We saw his presence. And of course, he will come again. But just to strengthen them in the fact that they can know and have confidence that they saw Christ. Yes. Okay? Yes. Uh, definitely, I think that is the point of 16 to 18 in itself is that we were eyewitnesses. And even earwitnesses. <laughs> You know, we, we really saw this. We really experienced this. And so it's not a fairy tale. This is grounded in historical fact. I mean, you know, what could be stronger than eyewitness testimony? And based on that, you can have confidence that he is coming again. I think so. Because, think about this. You know, and I'm still kind of trying to debate this, so, you know... You can come back at me with, with this. But why pick out the incident of the transfiguration? What did the transfiguration especially show about Jesus? 
His glory. Yeah. I think so. His glory, his majesty. I mean, the Peter, I mean, he, he was eyewitnesses of a lot of things about Jesus. You know, he saw him all the time. But there was something special about what he saw on the mountain. He saw the great glory of Jesus. I mean, he saw it in his face, in his clothing. I mean, he, the, 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 the brilliance of Jesus just like shone through his skin. That's something special to see about Jesus. He was a witness of a lot of things. But that really showed him the glorious greatness of Jesus. And, and, and what he heard. I mean, that was God you know, the great majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. I mean, it just seems to me like it shows you more about the greatness, the true nature of Jesus. He was eyewitnesses of the reality of Jesus, you know, in in lots of different areas. But this was the, the glimpse he had of the real glory of Jesus. And I think that's true no matter what we want to say about the significance of the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But when Jesus comes, you know, he'll come in glory. He'll come back in his, um, you know, glorified state, in the state that he was in in the transfiguration. I mean, you know, I think about Hebrews 9, verse 27, inasmuch as appointed to for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Second time he comes, it won't be with, for sin. It won't be as a sin offering. You know, when he comes back, it's going to be in a glorified state. And, and I'm wondering if, you know, Peter's vision of the majesty and the glory of Jesus in the transfiguration is, is sort of the evidence that Jesus will come again in glory. Yeah, I may be getting more out of this than what there is here, but I wonder if this is almost like establishing their authority is only up to the first part of chapter 3, when he talks about, for men will say, you know, this is the way it's always been and everything, because the basic point of that is that's not true. They'll try and convince you of that, and to men's eye that may seem convincing, because we've been here forever, and things they'll say things will always try to keep keep continuing. But it seems to me like he's establishing this, saying we saw this, so we you can be assured that this is true. So that when the time comes for that, they'll be ready for that. And no, no, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's more or less what I think. I, I still I'm not absolutely sure about you know this idea. I'm sure that. He was a witness to Jesus' glory on the mountain of transfiguration, and this was not a fairy tale. This really happened. That that's that's a definite. That's definitely what he's saying. But you know how he made known to them power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, connecting that with the second coming, is more debatable. Uh, but it does seem to me to fit with the point he's making. I'm thinking at the moment that the false teachers were not wanting to submit to Christ. They were wanting to indulge the flesh. And therefore, they didn't want to believe in the second coming. They didn't want to believe in the judgment, and they denied it. And so Peter is saying, we, we know Jesus is coming. We saw his glory. We got a preview. We got a glimpse of what that's going to be like. I don't know. Right. Jesus didn't 
really seem to me to come to show his power in his first coming. Um, if he did, you know, he may have been born of a virgin queen and then gone and conquered the Romans. <laughs> even even when he did show his power, like still in the sea, he, he didn't do anything magnificent or great. He just, you know, said, shush, and it was quiet. But I think uh, Peter and James and John saw something that people didn't normally see in Jesus, his glory and his power, because if he had come showing all his power, then everybody would have fallen on their faces, you know, for those those who love him and those who were just outright terrified of him. Good point. <clears throat> yeah, I agree with that. The power in coming fits more the second coming. That I, as I say, I may I may change my view eventually. But um, what about in verse 18, when we were with him on the holy mountain? Was Jesus transfigured on a holy mountain? He was when he got done with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. The holiness is because of what happened there in the transfiguration. It had been a common mountain, but it became a holy mountain. Yeah, you might connect Psalm 2.6, the decree uh, for, to install Jesus as king on God's holy hill. That was Zion, but it's still the idea of the mountain of God's presence, wherever he shows himself, that becomes a holy mountain. Um, hey, can you imagine what an impact the transfiguration had on Peter? Wow. You'd have seen that? I mean, who knows? I guess this is, what, 30 or 40 years later? But he remembers it. <laughs> he remembers the words he heard. You know, that had an impact. You know, that, and it, that was definitely made. He knows this was no fairy tale. He saw it. Other comments and questions? Through 18. Well, 19 is another complicated verse, and I'll tell you what I think right now, but I may change my mind on this one, too. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. There are lots of complications in that verse. And there's even some complications as far as how you translate it, and I suspect that some of your translations are different from that in the first part of the verse. Um, let me tell you what I think he's saying. I think he's appealing to prophecy as a second evidence of Jesus, ultimately of Jesus' power and glory and second coming. And I think he's saying that the revelation of Jesus' power and glory in the transfiguration confirms the prophetic word that it's authenticated by being fulfilled in Jesus' glory displayed in the transfiguration. And that any doubts you might have had about whether or not the prophecy was true, or maybe about whether or not the prophecy was really pointing to Jesus, that, those, that, that, that prophetic word is confirmed by being fulfilled by Jesus manifesting his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. So we have the transfiguration, that, that makes the prophetic testimony even more sure. Because it more or less confirms the very same thing the prophets said. Now, there's a, several other ways of understanding that. 
but that seems a little better to me than the others. And therefore he says we ought to pay attention to the prophetic word. It's like a lamp shining in a dark place. The, the, the prophecies of scripture, that is the, the word of scripture, is like a light in the darkness. You know, I mean, isn't the word a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path, Psalm 119, 105? You know, we're in darkness, but the you've got to pay attention to that light of God's word, God's prophecy, because that that's the light you have in the middle of this darkness. And that lamp of the scripture's teaching shines until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. When Jesus comes back, the darkness disappears. When, when Jesus comes back, the, the full day dawns. You don't need this lamp shining. Now you've got the full brightness of the glory of Jesus return. There's some problems with that, but that I, that's what I get out of it, is that, you know, the transfiguration confirms the prophetic word, a prophetic word that you need to pay attention to, because it's like the light and the darkness, and you pay attention to that until Jesus comes back, until the day actually dawns, and his brightness illuminates everything. What do you think? Can you spell that again? I didn't get it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> probably, but I probably can't say it the same way. <laughs> I might change my mind by the second time I say it. <laughs> Revelation 22 says that exact same thing, that there's there's not going to be lamps or lights. There's not even going to be any sun. God's going to be the light. What's the need of a lamp in the middle of noon? Yeah, and you've got some prophetic passages along that line, too, that the presence of the Lord sort of... Uh, makes uh, the sun useless. You know, I mean, can you imagine, um, well, it's kind of like, um, you know, the question of where do the stars go when the sun comes out? You know the answer to that, right? They're still there. They're still there. The sun outshines them. You can't see them. Can you, can you imagine where the sun goes when Jesus comes? <laughs> you know, even if it was there, you'd never see it. In the overwhelming glory and brightness of Jesus. And uh, so, Eric, let's hear you. Other thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was trying to the first time. <laughs> you just um, tried to complicate my life. <laughs> what, did, what did you say there that the game So we have the prophetic word made more sure. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word. That's another possibility. What, what, what would that mean? Well, it would mean that we've got the transfiguration as evidence, but even surer than that, we've got the prophetic word. So that'd be almost the opposite. That the prophetic word is even stronger confirmation than what the transfiguration was. Like because they could, they could all read about it? Maybe so. Just witness, yeah, there'd be maybe several things. Maybe that... Maybe the prophecy is stronger than the, the event that the, you see. You know, I'm seeing it as the opposite. The transfiguration makes the prophetic word even more confirmed. But this would be, you got the transfiguration, but you want something even surer than that, you got the prophecy. So it's the idea of the lie is referring to the transfiguration and the prophets. The idea, is that what the idea is? I think the light and the lamp shining is the prophetic word. Well, if we have two translations, uh, what in the context would help us to point to one way or the other? Well, the first consideration would be the grammar of the statement. There's a debate about which is right grammatically. 
And I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it depends on how you read the context. I was wondering about the reverse because of what he says next, how sure prophecy is. That prophecy isn't debatable. It has a true meaning. And it is truth. Uh, so that is even, I don't know, it, it's absolute truth. I know that what he saw was also absolute truth, so... <laughs> well, I know, and that that all kind of confuses me. But it's like, wouldn't the fulfill? Doesn't the fulfillment of a prophecy confirm the prophecy still? I mean, don't the miracles confirm the the testimony? It would seem that uh, the tra- it would make. I think it would make more sense the transfiguration would be the son because. They already know the prophecy, so that's not as big a, of a thing to them because they've known it, they've grown up hearing it, you know, over and over and over. The transfiguration is something new, so that some new evidence always seems so much better and so much brighter than the old evidence. Yeah, but certainly in 19, I don't know what yours reads, but to, to which you do well to pay attention is to a lamp shining in a dark place, that to which seems to me it has to refer to the prophetic word. And two, if we think this might be referring to Gentiles, the Gentiles wouldn't have heard the prophecy as much as the Jews. Yeah, maybe, although I think there are times when the Gentiles are expected to know the Old Testament also. Well, I don't know. If you think about it, some a prophecy is a whole lot more concrete than three guys saying they saw something. Um, there are a lot of people that are just as convinced as the apostles that they saw something, that they heard something. Um, and so just because these three guys said they saw it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Um, but the prophecy is what makes what they saw mean something. I mean, that's a good statement, I think, on the opposite side of what I'm saying for the first part of 19. I think that would be more or less the case for... Uh, and we have the prophetic word that is sure, that is more certain uh, than even the testimony of the transfiguration. I think that it would be more or less that that angle of interpretation. Not the one I'm taking, but that's that's a good statement. I'd say either way, the prophecy is sure. One way we're saying it's more sure than the transfiguration. The other way we're saying it's made more sure by the transfiguration. <clears throat> okay, yes. And also just connected with verse 20, um, a, a reason for a prophetic word being more sure is because it can't be interpreted versus a, a, an event, perhaps, that could be... Well, we'll come to that, and I don't think that's the correct interpretation of that, but okay. we'll see. I'd just like to say that I'm glad where I preach people don't ask hard questions like this because I'm going to understand what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for right. spending what you do. <laughs> what? <laughs> Shut up, no questions in this <laughs> Oh, well, my, my uh, favorite answer is I don't know. So. <laughs> 
I get many occasions to use this. I have a question. I was afraid of that. <laughs> After all that, you got a question. <laughs> this prophecy that we keep talking about, what was it prophesying? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, maybe prophesying at least about Jesus. Clearly that. Perhaps about Jesus' glory, greatness, and power. Perhaps even about the second coming. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, probably needs to be delved into more. <coughs> by me no, me about about transfiguration? I can't think of no, I don't know that there is. <laughs> Why not all the prophecy? Maybe so. Or at least all the prophecy relating to Jesus in his coming. Which in Talmud Peter's view is all in the <laughs> Yeah. All the scriptures refer to Jesus. Yes. Larry, Larry knew Tommy back when he wasn't so. I heard uh, that blasphemous name and I wanted to spit it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Who right. brought that up? <laughs> all right. <laughs> Now, what about 20 and 21? But know this, first of all, you know, before we get the cart before the horse, that no prophecy of Scripture is something. And there's about a zillion translation of this. In mine, it's is a matter of one's own interpretation. What else have you got? Private interpretation? Private interpretation? Comes from someone's own Comes from someone's own interpretation? I like that one better. Be interpreted by man's unaided reason. That was a translation. <laughs> when what version? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever TCNT stands. Uh, I don't know, but uh, that's not a good one. Mine <laughs> <laughs> says private interpretation, but also put not under set underneath it says origin, private origin. Yeah. The point, I think, there is this is debated, but I, I feel pretty strongly about this, is he's saying that the scriptures do not arise from the prophets' own interpretation and understanding. Instead, verse 21, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I think he's saying the prophecies are not the prophets' interpretation. They don't come out of his own head. They don't come out of his own explanation of things. They are, the prophecies are what the Holy Spirit moved them to speak. So we're not talking about the explanation of the prophecies. We're talking about the origin of the prophecies. That the prophecies don't come out of the prophet's own head, out of his own interpretation. They come from the Holy Spirit speaking from God. And therefore the prophecy is solid. You know, you can, you can pay attention. It is a lamp. It's a lamp you can rely on because the prophets didn't make it up. They were moved and, and, and even controlled by the Holy Spirit from God. <laughs> yeah. Did you call it in? Okay, cool. Uh, in about, whenever Michael comes back, we can have some pizza. But that'll be 45 minutes from so you gotta you gotta have spiritual food before we can have physical food. Um, comments and questions through verse twenty one.
Balaam didn't have a whole lot of control over what he was saying. <laughs> Good point. Nor his donkey. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't control his donkey? His donkey didn't control what he was saying. I really think Balaam's donkey is sort of a foil for Balaam. In, in that. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like God can speak to <coughs> dumb animals, be it donkey or Balaam. Well, I, I doubt that donkeys <laughs> usually control what they say. Right? They don't, normally. Where is Balaam? Numbers 22 to 24. I think it's Interesting, just, I know this has been brought up a lot, but looking at how much Peter's changed, I mean, you you, you can look at a couple of big uh, changes in his life uh, from after he, from the, from when he denied Jesus to Acts chapter 2 with his first sermon, and then from, from after the occurrence in Acts 15, where Paul was to, Paul rebuking him from Galatians 2 to this point where, I mean, this is some deep stuff, deep, deep stuff. I mean, it's just incredible how God and Christ can change people. I mean, just look at, and that that's, Peter's definitely good news for us because we, because we wouldn't be anything without Christ. So I think Peter's a good example for us. I agree. Good points. Other thoughts on chapter 1? I really didn't think chapter 1 would take so long. It's a, it's good and bad when I've just studied something freshly. It's, I don't have as much fear of thinking about it, but it is fresh on your mind, so you think about it a lot. But it's really cool to, to look at. All right, chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 3. We'll read those, and then we'll kind of see how it connects with chapter 1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I have occasion to say this again, but do you get the impression that Peter did not like these guys very well? <laughs> sure. Um, look at what he's saying and how this connects up with chapter 1. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people. What people? The Jews? Yes. Just as there will also be false teachers among you. <clears throat> Now look at what we've got. In 16 to 18 of chapter 1, the witnesses were what? Or who? Who were the witnesses there? Yeah, Peter, James, and John, New Testament apostles. Then in 19 to 21, we're looking at what was done by who? Particularly in 20 and 21. God, through the prophets. In which testament? The Old. Old Testament prophets. So we go from New Testament apostles to Old Testament prophets. Then two one, but false prophets also arose among the te- uh, among the people. That's Old Testament false prophets. Just as there will also be false teachers among you. 
there's New Testament false teachers. So you got New Testament apostles, Old Testament prophets, Old Testament false prophets, New Testament false teachers. He's connecting this up. You've got at the end of chapter 1, you've got the true prophets of the Old Testament. But there weren't just true prophets in the Old Testament. There were also false prophets in the Old Testament. And a lot of them in certain times. And there's not just false prophets in the Old Testament. There's going to be false teachers among you. And that's what he's really concerned about. And that's chapter 2. And to some extent chapter 3 is warning about these false teachers who arise among you. I think false teachers who, among other things, were denying the second coming. But he describes them a lot here. They secretly introduced destructive heresies. So they're worming their way in, sort of deceptively. They're not really telling what they're... They're not being open about the false doctrine they're, they're insinuating. Um, I, it reminds me of something that's rather uh, difficult now not to uh, detail this or be understood uh, what I'm dealing with but, but I knew a situation one time uh, that was very much like this um, you know the, uh, the kinds of teachings that sell well are, are the teachings that basically let you do whatever you want to and I knew a situation where there was a respected man in church who began doing exactly this. He was teaching, basically, that freedom from law and being under grace meant that we didn't have to worry much about what God's Word said. We could kind of do whatever we wanted to. And that all the old rules and regulations and laws we thought we were bound by really don't apply. But the person did it how? House to house, starting with weak Christians and working on them and getting a following of different weaker people before it was ever even known to those who were in the leadership of the group. You know, because that's kind of how those things often work. You know, it's more successful if you secretly introduce these. And if you kind of work, he, he will say in verse uh, 18, they, they entice those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They work on the new converts first. They work on the weakest ones first. They get, they get these people who are more vulnerable and they don't make it, they, they, they're kind of below the surface so nobody really warns about them or, 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 or you know, denounces them. Um, even, now here's, here's what they teach, even denying the master who bought them. Is there anything ironic about that? In Isaiah, as far as I know, in Isaiah where uh, God says, you know, I'd be disciplined, 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 you be says, but even a donkey knows its master and you do not know me. Yes, that's true. I'm thinking about who wrote this. Yeah. Denying the master who bought them. wonder if Peter, as he wrote that, thought a moment about what he had done. Obviously, what they are doing is a much more settled course, a much more subtle thing. They're denying the master who bought them because they are denying that Jesus is the master, that he's the Lord. They're denying his authority. They are 
they're doing very much, you know, in some of this you can really see parallels with Jude. And uh, in Jude uh, 4, um, they, uh, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You know, they deny His authority. They want to do whatever they want to do and not have to deal with the mastership of Jesus. And thus they bring swift destruction upon themselves. That's what he's warning about, these false teachers who are doing this. Now he's going to keep describing them, reading their pedigree in the next couple of verses, but do you have comments or questions on verse 1? Well, certainly what we were talking about in the last chapter, I mean, it takes a lot of diligence to know what somebody's talking about so you can stand up against that and be watchful against that. It sounds a lot of what uh, the writer says in Hebrews about watching out uh, for falling, you know, that slow, gradual fall or whatever. whatever. Absolutely. And obviously if you have the knowledge of the Lord, you will not fall into these traps. Yes. It comes back to how we need to go in our knowledge of the Lord. Yes. He says many will follow their sensuality. These are the false teachers, but he speaks of their sensuality. Evidently, what they taught led men into self-indulgent activities. Led them into lustful, sensual practices. There's a lot of things that make me think that these guys are both acting and teaching that the grace of God is license, as Jude said. We'll come over in verse 14, and they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Uh, in verse 19, they'll promise freedom. And I think the whole idea is they are teaching, it's okay. Those doctrines are always popular. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of Jezebel in Revelation 2, saying idolatry and immorality is okay. People want to hear those teachings. We want to be taught, someone has said, no doctrine, however senseless and monstrous, which ministers to the sensual appetites of men will ever lack followers. Or in other words, if what you teach lets men do what they want to, it'll be popular. Many will follow their sensuality. Many want to hear what these guys teach because they're relaxing the rules and they're letting you do whatever you want to. What do you think? I think you're right. In 1 Corinthians 6 and 11, he says, you know, be not deceived, Galatians 5. Because I think the temptation to believe those things is is such a, is so strong in us because we don't want to serve the Lord. We want to serve ourselves and we want to do... We don't want God over us. We want to be our own God's... You know, I was thinking about, when's the last time you've been to a funeral where someone wasn't in heaven? You know, I mean, everybody the grandmother knows the Lord's in heaven. I, I'm glad everybody's going because Jesus has straightened the gate in a narrow way. Few there be that find it, but people do not want to know. And we presume, just like 1 Corinthians 10, we presume, here are all these blessings that are like that, and yet God was not pleased with them, destroyed them, because they presumed and took God for granted and thought... You know, we don't have to give diligence. And the world is deceived. And when you try, you know, guy, guy was walking, my next door neighbor's father died recently, hadn't had a chance to see him. 
And uh, he was walking it. I said, you know, I said, I said, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. They said, well, thank you. He said, he's in a better place. I said, and we got to talking. I said, before he left, I said, uh, he said, uh, I said, you know, again, I'm sorry about your dad. He said, well, he's in a better place. And I said, well, I hope so. You know, I don't know what he wanted me to say, you know, but everybody's going. I don't know why we even study this because everybody's going. So, well, it is what we want to believe. We want to believe not only about everybody else, but ourselves also. You know, and that you can you can go as you are, you know, you can do what you want to. And and yet, look at the rest of verse 2. This is intriguing. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Now think about the false teachers who believe and practice that you can do whatever you want to. They give the way of the truth a bad name. Think about all of the celebrated cases of immorality among the men of the cloth. You know, be among, you know, preachers. I mean, you know who the most popular preacher among evangelicals probably was in the 80s? I think. Jimmy Swigert. And, well, he's been disgraced and and what about Jim Baker? You know, and I don't know who, don't keep up with that stuff today, I don't know who's falling in, in our day. But, but you know what people do? They're like, that's the way religious people are. You know, that's the way those Christians are. You know, yeah, they teach all that stuff. <laughs> they don't look what we find out. You know, how they've been living. Now they may get followers preaching that, but they cause the way of truth to be maligned. They cause people to speak against the truth of the gospel. Isn't that true? That's sad. You know, they're not only perverting themselves and those who listen to them, but they're turning other people away from the way of truth who hear about their misconduct. And so many times these guys that are teaching that everything's okay, they live like they believe everything's okay. False teaching and false living go together. And you take people who aren't teaching the truth, whatever side they may be on, when they're not teaching the truth, I think there's a much greater tendency that they're not living the truth either. Because if you had character to live the truth, you'll believe it and teach it. That's where they're at. Comments and questions on verse 2 or anything through verse 2? I think that compromising on those things will give a short-term appearance of success. And you'll, you'll get more numbers, you'll get people following you. So if people are listening to what you have to say and, and happy to hear it, then surely this is from God because we're doing so well. Um, I think it was in 1st or 2nd Timothy that talked about the growth that is from God. We need to be delivered from this mentality that, you know, because we're growing, we're right. Wow. Reminds you of uh, Hosea 12. You know, I'm rich, therefore God's blessing me. You know, therefore I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, just because we're growing, many follow the way of error. That's what Larry was saying. Look at three. 
And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Wow. Are there any religious teachers who teach because of greed? <laughs> Why are we laughing? <laughs> that's rhetorical, right? Yeah. We know that, don't we? I mean, that's... Wow, that's so obvious. That's, isn't it a shame? Almost makes you think... Is there something about the ease of getting money out of religious people that turns con men to religion <laughs> as an easy way of, uh, you know, making money? Maybe it does. Or maybe just the ease of doing it turns religious people to con men. I don't know. But, but clearly these false teachers, in their greed, exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. You know that they're going to, to be punished. And that's the... The end of verse 3 is the transition into the next section. Alright, questions and comments to verse 3? Is, is, it that is it not their teaching and their greed and their sensuality that is causing the truth to be maligned? Or is it only the exposure of their hypocrisy? Maybe some of all of that. I mean, because I see that they're not teaching the truth. Not even claiming to be. So it wouldn't necessarily be them being found out that it's not truth, but isn't it in a way, is the false teaching itself maligning the truth? Maybe so, although I think I can see it more clearly from their exposure of their misbehavior, causing the way of truth to be maligned. I mean, I, the example I would be would be like the serpent with Eve. He maligned the truth by giving the false teaching to Eve. It would seem to me that that would be more that they malign the truth instead of because of them the way of truth will be maligned. It doesn't seem to me like they're the ones maligning the truth as much as because of what they do that leads to other people maligning the truth. Well, I, well, I look at uh, what the false teachers are teaching with the idea of we're these for long, therefore don't have to follow it. But because we're saved by grace alone, I think of Romans 6.15, where it says, uh, Shall we then sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Yeah, I mean, I'm just suggesting that is the way I look at that is... You know, it says because of them, the way of truth will be, the truth will be maligned. Then it seemed to me like it's not so much they're maligning it as they're the cause of it being maligned. But I suppose it still could be the, because of their teaching. People looking at the honest teacher and comparing them to the dishonest and saying, no, you're all the same way. It's like the attorney I heard on the radio. He said, 98% of attorneys give the rest of us a bad name. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> yeah. That may be true. I don't know. Probably 98% of the preachers give the rest of us a bad name. You know, wow. It's, I mean, it, it becomes almost proverbial. It's almost like, you know, People just get to the point where they inherently don't respect a religious person. And, you know, I mean, certainly, however we want to take this verse, it's true. And he'll say that in First Peter 2, or he had said it. Uh, you know, our behavior. 
you know, reflects on the gospel. I mean, First Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may be because of your good deeds as they observe and glorify God in the day of visitation. If you live right, that's going to be a powerful witness. If you don't, it just proves what they thought anyway. It's all a farce. You know, it's all a facade. They just, it doesn't really mean anything. They're all just like we are. You know, they just try to act like they're, they're different. That's what people want to believe anyway. And so they jump at that opportunity. All right, anything else through verse 3? That reminds me of, like, Paul, how I said we did not come to you for defilery or pretext for injury. For Thessalonians 2. Yeah. Um, for Thessalonians, he, his purpose was not at all to gain recognition for himself, but to give glory to God. And, or, you know, to try to teach them something false. It did not expect error or purity. Yes. Good points. What about that language, their destruction is not asleep? I mean, why? In that little odd way to say. <laughs> yeah, I guess because they aren't destroyed immediately, people would think their destruction is slumbering. The judgment from long ago. I don't have a good answer on that. He's not slack concerning his promises. Yeah. I mean, it will come, just the Lord's long sufferings. Uh, I don't know why I said that. It's good. And New King James Version says, For a long time their judgment has not been idle. So it's like God's in the process. You yes. know, it's this thing's already on the way. <laughs> the train's already left the station. Their fate is sealed, is what makes me think of it. He's going to follow that up with examples of the destruction of, um, you know, the wicked. So, kind of, kind of this confirmation that God does do this. You know, don't think they're not going to get it. Look at all these others who have. Anybody else want to help me out of my difficulties? I guess their judgment from long ago is not idle. I guess you know, you'd kind of be um, uh, kind of referring back to the Old Testament prophet prophets, how they were always, I guess, I guess they always came to ruin in the end, I guess, maybe. Does that make any sense? Uh-huh. Yes. All right, how about 4 through 10a? God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, con- he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous lives, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented he was tormenting his righteous soul um, over their lawlessness the, or the, their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. 
then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous um, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So, this shows you that God destroys the wicked. Because he's giving some examples, and then sort of uh, coming to a conclusion in verse 9. Um, and his examples are powerful ones, although we might discuss them a little bit. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, doesn't that strike you as a, one of the most powerful examples you can come up with? I mean, this is not even humans, even angels. You know, angels would be celestial beings. Angels would be greater beings. If God doesn't even spare angels, you know, much less would he spare mere human beings. So exhibit A, in terms of God destroying the wicked, is not sparing angels when they sin. Um, and what did he do with the angels that sinned? Cast them hell? Yes. So word that's only used here, in the Old Testament. Uh, it's not the word Gehenna. It's not the word Hades. It's uh, a different word. But he cast him into hell or into whatever you want to call this. Why? Well, what's the purpose of casting those angels there? Reservation for judgment? Yes. Doesn't that happen in our legal system? Do you ever incarcerate somebody awaiting the sentence? Kind of a preliminary sort of thing? Not often enough. <laughs> You're right. Um, so it's like they are being put in a place guarding them for the coming judgment. Now I believe that the idea is that even in this place they are in, uh, undergoing punishment. He'll say in verse 9, he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. There's punishment going on for these angels and for the unrighteous generally in this um, incarceration awaiting the judgment in which they will receive the final sentence and the ultimate punishment. It's not like the angels are in a place of the fallen angels are in a place of enjoyment. They're, they're actually in chains, depending on your translation, or they're in pits of darkness. They're in the dungeon. Now, it's not pleasant, but they're actually you know, undergoing this, awaiting something even worse, awaiting the, the, the final judgment of that great day. Comments and thoughts on this verse? Gary, I guess on that passage, it's something that's stumped me for a long time. Um... Have they been in darkness ever since they sinned? Um, were they released for a while to, to I mean, to demon-possess people upon the earth? I don't know if I understand some of that. Uh, yeah, well, Joy, the rest of us. <laughs> okay. um, I don't know. However, uh, I might as well just say this, even though maybe this is irrelevant and maybe this is, uh, you know, you want to crucify me over this, but I really suspect that this is specifically talking about... That's, my, that's Michael. Michael. Let's, I'll, uh, well, I'll Play say this. Now, yeah, I'll say this and then we'll talk about that. I think this is talking about Genesis 6 and the angels. 